Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Nitan. And you're listening to Stories from the East and West, a show with little-known stories from Central and Eastern Europe that changed our world. For today's episode, we've got something special for you. We sent our producer Wojtek to the Czech Republic. And then, later on in London, Adam and Wojtek recorded this episode together with... I'm George Kinjal. I'm Luke Jones. And we have a podcast together about buildings and cities, which is self-explanatory. We're joining forces with Luke and George because of the very unusual story we wanted to tell you today. It's about a shoemaker, a shoemaker who started building a utopian city. Coming up on Stories from the East and West. And about buildings and cities. Zlín, Praha, Varsava, Madrid, London, Paris, New York, Casablanca. Where you see a kind of totality of the human presence. Absolutely, absolutely. That is exactly. Stories from the Eastern West. Thomas Batia, born in 1876, was the founder of the Batia Shoe Company. For years, this Czech company was the absolute number one footwear brand in Europe. By the time Thomas died in 1932, it was a multi-industry, worldwide business. Back at the beginning of the 20th century, however, his company was struggling to get off the ground. But Thomas Batia was relentless. Despite facing bankruptcy, he traveled to the United States. And there, he took the worst jobs at the Ford factory. He learned all about capitalism, efficiency, motivation, and he truly internalized the sky-is-the-limit attitude and returned to the Czech Republic to make use of it. Except the sky was never the limit for him. Famously, the day that really changed everything was the day he ran out of leather. He decided to start making a new kind of low-priced shoe, one made out of canvas. It turned out to be exactly what people were waiting for. The shoes went down in history as Batovki, and they gave Tomas Batia enough capital to turn his workshop into a serious enterprise with factories and thousands of workers. That's pretty much when Batia said, I'm not here to build the company, but to build a new man. To build, build not company, not company but, build the people. but build the people. And set out to change the whole world around him. Starting from the way his company worked, through redesigning the very city he lived in, he went as far as attempting to change the very way his employees lived too. He started building his brave new world around his factories in Zlin. The idea was to turn Zlin into the ideal utopian city. And the utopian town is a great story. That's how, I mean, they start as books, but it, it always has a story of how people are going to live, what's going to motivate them. It wants an ideology. Yes. But the ideology can be almost anything. Yeah. The oblong, obelisk block surrounded by lots of little blocks can have like IBM on the top, or it can have a ham and sickle on the top, or a swastika on the top or it can have batter on the top. It just needs a strong ideology. But in a way, the sort of symbolism of the ideology, I mean, you can change them a bit, but what it says is we have an organising principle. For Zlin, this ideology was work and progress. Our producer Wojtek went down to Zlin and interviewed a few experts on Batya's utopian principles. The first you heard earlier, quoting Batya. Pavel Velev, director of Thomas Bata Foundation. Pavel swiftly laid out the ground rules of the Batyan system. First of all, all people working for Bata was entrepreneurs, not workers or staff only. And it was a serious thing, not just a slogan. 
There were two rock-steady pillars to this. Sharing of profit and loss. Every single worker was made to feel responsible for how the company was doing. How? Well, if you worked according to plan, you'd get your micro-cut of the final profit. You was very well paid. However, if you didn't do it according to plan, you had to pay this loss. This financial responsibility was further reinforced by the second pillar, the autonomy of units. Every unit of the whole company was autonomous. It was responsible for meeting its quotas and financial plans and self-governed to a significant extent. The only thing tying the whole company together were a set of plans and documents. The system worked perfectly. Very simple. All the documents in company were so simple that everybody had to understand. And the overriding rule above all other rules was... We are doing everything for society. It's a service for society. That meant the community is more important than the individual. So we willingly give the system a certain right to control us. A classic feature of utopias, as George and Luke point out. Utopia can be anything, but it has to be controlled. Yeah, it has to be, uh, it's got to be orderly. But that order can be imagined or constituted in all sorts of different ways. And it has to notionally be for the benefit of society. The Batian system was no different, but people could see Zlin was offering much better living conditions than anywhere else. And many, many people, thousands of people, wanted to work for Bata. Before Batya, Zlin was basically a small, poor village with most of the people working in agriculture. By the 1930s, it was a big town with over 25,000 inhabitants, where company workers earned twice as much as people doing the same jobs elsewhere. But the place did also attempt to control people's lives. And the way they were doing it was the most peculiar thing of all. Listen to what Vitya Kubicek, an expert on Zlin and Batya, revealed to us. The architecture was functioning as a as an engine for the whole system, a whole paternalistic system of a father of Thomas Batya and the, the heads of company and the children, the workers. To better understand how paternalistic ideas blend with redesigning a whole city, we asked Luke and George from About Buildings and Cities to take us a bit deeper. Well, there are a few things to, to talk about. Mm, things are about to get exciting, aren't they? From above, Zlin looks like a clever kid's drawing. It was carefully divided into single-purpose areas. The industrial part, a center where people ate and shopped, and then the residential districts. Rolling hills in the background. They're thickly forested. There's lots of trees, sort of, there are trees everywhere. There's grass and trees in the foreground. And then we have these sharply delineated diagonal rows of identical little box semis. dwellings. Yeah, There's semis a perfect attached. London, which is semis. Everyone semis gets attached, to live in yeah. a house, join to another house to make it look bigger. Yeah. So it's a, so it's a well, it's a suburban house type, isn't it? It's yeah. a, like a classically suburban and, house and type. And it's sort of a garden city. The garden city. This was a 19th century idea from a British gentleman called Ebenezer Howard. Howard believed that an ideal city would be one full of gardens. Batya had read his book, loved it, and tried to sort of make it happen in real life, but in his own capitalist manner. Yes. Everyone's got um, a plot of land. We're going to be connected to nature, a little one. 
but it's also on a grid. Yeah, that's what's... Which is anti... It's also hyper-anti-picturesque. You've got yeah. this rolling landscape and you choose to machinize it. Yeah, because you can you can follow the line of houses and you can go, you can see like, there's like 20 in a row. Mm. So whereas the classic garden city would place the houses in such a way that they're disposed to create these little nooks and crannies and this sense of lots and lots of little neighborhoods which obscure the size of the overall development. In this example, they're arranged in such a way that you kind of read its massiveness through the repetition and through the sort of visible repetition of elements. And also having the open vistas means you will always see the big factory buildings. Yes. The company built over 2,200 so-called batia houses. In Czech, people would call them batovky, after those basic canvas shoes. These almost identical semi-detached or twin houses were for workers and their families. They embodied the Batian principle. Work here in factory collectively, but live in the houses individually. Batya wanted his workers to spend their free time gardening, taking care of their families and houses, rather than looking for entertainment or trouble elsewhere. Characteristically, in such places, there are no pubs, you know. You try and keep people yeah. from... They no make fun it, in chocolate town. Yeah, make it impossible for people to go and get drunk, when, uh, uh, like go and take all their pay packet and spend it all on booze before they get home. That won't happen because it won't be possible. That's right. Even today, you can still hardly find any bars in the old residential areas. Alcohol wasn't forbidden, but it wasn't sold in any batia shops either. And of course, that was where everybody was buying their food because the prices were very low. So they were being paid by Batya to buy product in Batya shops. It was a pretty cheeky arrangement. The houses were crammed together and the fences low enough so that everybody could peek into their neighbors' gardens at all times. Again, a utopian trademark. It's a bit North Korean. You've got to clean up the streets and do the collective gardens. Yeah. And be jolly happy about it and also spy on your neighbours. Yeah, and make, and make sure, sure make that sure none everyone's... of them are engaging in adultery or, yeah. um, you know. And that's, so, that's part of utopia too. There was also a higher form of control, literally. In the middle of the town, the Batya company built the very first skyscraper in the Czech Republic. It had two features that Luke and George found fascinating. The first was its roof terrace, which for them was a clear embodiment of... The Panopticon, which is this famous prison, which which has a single observer at the centre who can see into all of the cells. It's a, so it's a, by, it's by a Bentham. circular wall of cells, yeah. but several high, where the inside wall is a grill, grill so you can see in. And yeah. in the middle there's a tower. Yeah. And the tower has a slit window right yeah. around it, so, you, so the prisoners cannot see the observer. Yeah. And it means that anyone, is anyone can be observed, and everyone is unsure as to whether they are being observed. Yeah. So it is a necessity, given the conditions of a punitive system, yeah. everyone will behave well. And not only will they behave well in the instant, by coercion, but they will generate the habit of behaving well yeah. and become ideal citizens. Because they never know whether they're being observed at any moment. So in tell. the in the context of the of the batter tower and the observation deck, it's much less of an issue as to whether Thomas Batter is actually standing up there with a pair of binoculars looking at you. But it's much more about at a symbolic level, you are constantly 
seeing the source of the observation rather than literally being observed. The skyscraper's other feature was mind-blowing. They installed an elevator office on one side of the building. Yes, a regular-sized, fully-furnished office. But in an elevator. It could stop at every one of the building's 16 floors, plus go up to the observation deck at the top. You don't know where the boss is. Like, he could be anywhere. You know, the elevator could be on any floor. So that in a, in a sense, I think that the two devices of the observation deck and the office inside the elevator are related because they are about uh, creating, you know, you sort of have to behave as if the, the boss is on your floor at, at all time because That's he could be at any moment. Although it must have been built to keep control of things, this bizarre office lift thing was probably also quite inspiring. It was clearly an expression of Batya's modernist dreams. It's also amazingly cinematic. It really creates this yeah. idea of the crowd, King Vidors, yeah. where the camera on this huge crane goes through the offices yeah. and sees the mass of people rushing around. And for the man steering everything, it creates, you know, motion, speed, as the presiding words of the interwar period, you know, or, or even before the first bit of the 20th century. Yeah. We are. We're we are accelerating and accelerating, and the compound movement of all your office workers rushing around while you swoop creates this amazing sense of action and dynamism. All these observation decks and houses looking into each other, plus all that work, 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 so far, you're probably thinking all this sounds like a terrible, oppressive system. Or maybe we're just trying to judge Interwars Lin from a present-day point of view. At least in part because of the legacy of these utopian societies that people were trying out in the mid-20th century. We, no one would propose that now, because we know it's associated with some really terrible things. But it wasn't associated with really terrible things before all that happened. Like now we think of like a controlled state and, and it... I mean, at the time, people were a bit worried about, like, the French Revolution or whatever. But the French yes, Revolution, like, anarchists. the reign of terror is not quite the same as the Holocaust yeah. or the Gulag. Yeah. Um, so people were, were, were less frightened of it. Yeah. I mean, some people were. People were the right against it. But people were, like, now we are really touchy about, about, about this sort of stuff. Yeah. And people weren't as touchy. Whether we now see it as overly authoritarian or not, we have to remember that this whole system was basically part of a mutually agreed contract. Batya was giving his employees the chance of a better, more affluent life. In Zlin, you could live for 175 crowns a week. Nice life. And your salary was 500 crowns a week. And in our country, gen generally, was 250 cost of the week, and 250 was your average salary in our country this time. But he also demanded they completely buy into the system. Let's reintroduce Vit Jakubicek, curator at the Zlin Regional Gallery. 
despite the fact that I love Zlin, I love Bakya, uh, I would not imagine living under such conditions. But I know many people, many old people who lived under those conditions, um, under the 24-hour control from the company, and they said, okay, but that wasn't any problem. Some people did get sick of it all and left, but then others would come and replace them. Times were changing, and after the chaos of the Great War, people were looking for stability. And Batya definitely provided that, even though, from today's perspective, it all seems rather authoritarian. Or, as Jakubicek puts it, They sometimes use the word paternalistic, that <laughs> no matter whether you are children, whether you are adult, the system, the company, is uh, looking after you as a personality, after your free time, because they said, okay, you're working uh, in factory, uh, but in the afternoon, you should also study. Move yourself forward. The Batya Foundation conducted a survey. It was for people who lived in Zlin during the interwar period. One of the questions was, if you had a chance to start your career over again, would you still work for Batya? Everybody told I will start again in Bata Company because it was it was an excellent life for us. We had everything. And the company itself was doing great. And in the 30s, the Bata was on the all continents except the Antarctic. Worldwide company. It was the biggest employer in Eastern Europe. So dominant, so stable, that you could say people who worked for it lived in a parallel reality or a separate country at least. It was one of only a few companies that got through the Great Depression after the Wall Street crash without much going wrong. It was on the path to limitless expansion. And one of the biggest reasons was that the Batyan system was educating its citizens from very early on. The goal was to turn each of them into a Batyaman, or a Batovitz, in Czech. Here's Dr. Zdeněk Pokluda from Batya University. The word Batovets generally meant a person who worked for the Batyas company. In the strictest sense, these were people who graduated from Batyas School of Work. In 1925, Thomas Batyas founded an apprentice school, and this school was supposed to raise and educate future employees. They were to be brought up according to the principles of responsibility, self-sufficiency, self-consciousness and thriftiness. Kids who attended the Batia School of Work were supposed to become the backbone of the company. The smartest would end up opening branches elsewhere in the world, but all would end up doing something intrinsic, be it factory worker or mechanic. Not only were they immersed in this culture, but they were armed with plans for a replicable city, a key factor that contributed to the company's expansion. So one of the most modernist things about Zlin as a proposal, and certainly one of the things which I think is strongly related to uh, the projects of, of Le Corbusier or Le Corbusier's way of, of seeing the town is this fact that it creates a, a, a sort of general and adaptable model which can then be rolled out in more or less any location. 
Batty believes Lynn was so organised that the model could be replicated and exported anywhere on the planet. And it actually was being exported, and on a massive scale. Wherever the Batya company was mining a certain resource, such as rubber or steel, it would start a city. Those cities are still there. Batangar in India, Batatuba in Brazil, Baraville in Canada. For real, we're not making these names up. And in the UK, East Tilbury. Tilbury. And it's funny going around there because it's got a big bronze statue of Thomas Batter. The roads are all Batter Avenue. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's Batter Avenue and there's Thomas Batter Avenue or Thomas Batter Road. Yeah. Like within a town with not very many roads. Love it or hate it, the batting system was efficient and attractive to many people. But whether it really was sustainable and could have kept going to the present day, we'll never know. It all abruptly ended with World War II. The Batya family was exiled and the whole company nationalized, taken over and reformed according to the post-war communist order. Today, the Batya company still exists in a different form and it definitely has had some considerable success in the post-Batyan era, but the utopian principles, the culture, that's all disappeared. Without new alumni coming from the Batya School of Work and most managers coming from other companies, it gradually became a normal company, however cool or iconic their designs remained. And what's Lynn like today? Let's ask our producer Wojtek, seeing as he was just there a few months ago. Well, Lynn is fine. It's beautiful and I really loved it. It still is a garden city. Jakubicek admits that it's going through a certain identity crisis. You know, unsurprisingly, the older generation seems to be very attached to the Bathian myth, and the younger people are slightly more critical of it, looking for some sort of new post-Bathian identity. Well, they still deeply respect this tradition, but they also want to move forward. And the most surprising thing is that the districts built by Batya are almost untouched. Like, they were so meticulously planned that and like so crammed that nobody, not even the communists who came later, could change them. And this is why visiting Zlin does feel a bit like time travel, going back to, you know, the times when people deeply believed in the possibility of creating a, some sort of a better world. Like not many would dare to do that now after all the grim experiences later in the 20th century. Of course, Thomas Batya didn't have that baggage and he had the courage to give it a go. And apart from being a business genius, he had one absolutely outstanding quality. If you took Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and set him behind the piano, he'd write an opera. If you took the athlete Emil Zatopek, the Czechoslovakian Olympic gold medalist runner and put him on a starting line, he would run and win the marathon. If you took Thomas Batya and put him in front of people, he would organize everything for them.
Stories from the East and West is produced by Culture PL and was hosted by Adam Jawowski and me, Nitan Reisner. This episode was made in collaboration with About Buildings and Cities. It was written, produced, and scored by Wojciech Oleksiak and edited by me, Adam Jawowski. Make sure to check out About Buildings and Cities wherever you get your podcasts. If architecture is your thing, we promise you'll love it. If you want to see notes from this episode, tap the show art in your app or go to sftew.com. There, you'll find photos of the buildings we talked about during the episode. And if you liked our show, um, Adam, what should people do? Tell just one person about the show. Just one. That's all we ask. One person. And make sure you check our feed in two weeks. A new episode drops on December 6th. It's about a world-famous theater that hardly anybody ever gets to watch. But one of our team did. Be sure to listen then.